The U.S. government has never been more vulnerable to cyber attacks. At least, that's the message from a 241-page report commissioned by the U.S. House Oversight and Government Reform Committee that looked into the huge Office of Personnel Management breach that took place last year. The OPM breach was arguably one of the most important and damaging cyber thefts ever. Hackers compromised sensitive personal information, including social security numbers and details gleaned from background checks from as many as 22 million people inside and outside the government. The OPM episode has certainly become a cautionary tale for many in Washington and beyond. How did it happen? What are some of the lessons the government needs to learn to prevent such a major breach from happening again? To answer those questions and more, we're going to be joined by one of the key technical experts on the report on the OPM attack, John Costello, who spent the last year on Capitol Hill as a science and technology fellow through Tech Congress. Welcome to the Cybersecurity Podcast, where you go beyond the headlines to interview some of the key leaders and thinkers in the field. I'm Peter Singer, strategist and senior fellow at New America. And I'm Sarah Sorcher, WD editor of Passcode, the Christian Science Monitor's section on security and privacy in the digital age. Before we talk with John, Peter and I are going to talk about some of the more interesting things that we've learned in the last month. Peter, what's what's been a highlight for you since we last spoke? Well, you know, I'm always on the road. It feels like traveling and I've been to um, a lot of different places uh, that are important in the story of cybersecurity in the last couple of weeks, ranging from uh, Hawaii to one of the more interesting for me was Wisconsin, where, uh, and I won't even try, Wisconsin. Um, <laughs> I was out there for a cybersecurity conference hosted by the state government and their National Guard. And it hit a lot of different things for me that are um, important in this field. One is how so much of the attention is paid to national level policy, but it's really next at the states and at even local government that are the crucial battlegrounds for whether it's um, actual attacks and defense to the policies that need to be made that's going to shape this. And again, you can think about this everything from the fears over election hacks to power grid going down. That was one of the other things that jumped out to me was what people working at the state level, the scenarios they're most concerned about. And they tend to either be the large scale, you know, uh, power grid going down one that's gotten so much attention, but also it's defacements, uh, hacktivism of a local government or state government website because someone's unhappy with some policy. That's what's driving a lot of their activity. Is that what you expected to see when you found there? I thought I would see that. One of the things that jumped out at me that was a little bit of a surprise is, and they would be the first to say it, they're working hard on this topic, but information sharing is not where it should be. And I was a little surprised by that because you'd think at the state and local level where, you know, people are not only in closer geographic connection, but, you know, they all tend to know each other. They'd find it easier to information share. And that wasn't the case yet. They're still struggling, you know, whether it's power companies that don't talk to other power companies, even Mm -hmm. when there's just like five in a state, those five aren't sharing well. And it's something that's been a major focus of the state government there is how do they jumpstart that? So- Sarah, how about you? What's something that you've been doing in the last month that's been fascinating? Um, well, Passcode was a media partner on an event hosted by the Center for Cyber and Homeland Security at George Washington University. And they just came out with a pretty interesting report on active defense. And so they, they had some some interesting conclusions there. Basically, now, active defense 
That's hackback, right? Well, so they say no. They say that there is a difference between what's considered active defense and what's considered hacking back. Hacking back, they would see as the more extreme going into other networks, shutting down computers that are attacking them and things that are very, very obviously hacking back. And they came up with this whole spectrum for a gray zone that they're calling it for active defense and everything from information sharing as those sort of the low risk end of the spectrum, all the way up through honeypots and beacons and all the way up to uh, white hat ransomware to actually shut down attacker's computer if they believe that it's stolen information and only release it, unlock it if the information is given back or rescue missions to retrieve stolen information or taking down malware-infected computers as part of botnets. All of this they would consider you know, a gray zone of active defense and they say that companies should be allowed to do this and sometimes um, with immunity from the Justice Department if they uh, take action the, with the intent to defend their system. So Thought it was pretty interesting. Definitely a good stab at defining some of these issues, but certainly not without controversy or disagreement, even on the panel that put it together. So is everyone in agreement around this concept? No. I mean, even in their own report, it was interesting. They had Nulo O'Connor, who um, was on the board of people putting this together, and she had a one-page write-up in the report that just said, actually, you know, we think that this is too aggressive and that there are some serious privacy implications if you're talking about going into other people's networks for any reason and locking up computers or going to take down some of the more active, more aggressive active defense measures um, she thought had some some serious implications and might not be quite legal or advisable because of significant risks of escalation or drawing in other people or the government into conflict or compromising the privacy of average citizens. And so it's Definitely an interesting discussion, and I, I think we'll see a lot more in the next administration as the government you know, steps up its efforts to try to be there for the private sector. But there's a huge cry from people who are in the private sector who say that the government isn't doing enough and that they should do more. So we'll have to see how it plays out. And now we'll hear from John Costello. John is a senior analyst for cybersecurity in East Asia at Flashpoint. He came to that role with a deep background on the topics of cyber warfare, emerging technologies, and information dominance, previously serving with the United States Navy and the NSA. He's also since joined New America as a fellow in our cybersecurity program. And he was sent to advise Congress last year on cybersecurity as a fellow with Tech Congress, where he helped investigate the Office of Personnel Management breach for the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. So, John, the core of your work last year with Congress was looking at this incident with the OPM that was arguably one of the most important breaches in cybersecurity history. Walk us through what happened. So from what we can tell, you know, the the breaches that that uh, sort of the scope of the investigation was primarily centered on um the, the hack that everyone knows about, the hack that everyone uh, heard about that, you know, sort of came out in, uh, in 2015. But there was an additional hack before that in 2014 um, as well. So uh, the, the investigation looked at sort of like a double hit against uh, OPM. And um, looking at the, uh, the entirety of the investigation, what we could tell is that in 2015, um, hackers got into OPM around uh, in May 7th. How did they get in? The investigation uh, materials that were available to Congress didn't pinpoint an exact intrusion method. However, what we could derive, it seemed as though they used contractor credentials from Keypoint to uh, VPN or tunnel into OPM's network. 
and they dropped malware directly on the network. So usually in a lot of us sort of cybersecurity incidents is one of the primary things you're looking for is how a hacker gets on the network. And usually it's through spear phishing or some sort of uh, social engineering using, you know, manipulating people or tricking people into overriding security controls themselves. Usually through spear phishing or they send an email with an attachment that looks like something else. In, in this investigation, um, in this incident, it appeared that they went directly into the network via a trusted outside source such as a, a contractor. Yes. Is there one thing that surprised you the most about this investigation? You hear about sophistication a lot with cyber actors. One thing that struck me was you could see very clearly that these cyber actors were looking and monitoring U.S. news and their targets and then responding to that. What do you mean? So you could see what these attackers did is they used command and control servers that they made look like OPM domains or websites owned by OPM. One was opmsecurity.org. The other was opmlearning.org. The original one, registered in April 25th of, of last year, was the initial um, domain, command and control domain that the attackers used. When the news came out about an earlier breach, within 10 days, they had switched to a new command and control server. Then you see them using that command and control server until the beginning of next year. ThreatConnect published a report on February 28th that discussed one of those command and control servers, um, not connecting it to the current the ongoing attack because the ongoing attack wasn't discovered yet. Within four days, they had switched to a new command and control server, uh, likely in response to this report that came out from ThreatConnect. That requires, I would say, resources that you don't see outside of those that could be supported by a large organization such as an expansive uh, criminal uh, group or a state actor. You don't see that with lower tier actors. I would say that's one of the most surprising and interesting uh, pieces to the, uh, to the OPM investigation. How about on the side of the discovery? Uh, so the reactions by OPM and those doing security for it, what jumped out of that to you? I would say for this um, particular breach, um, OPM was very quick to respond. I think they were very quick to call in uh, Silence or outside contractors and have them sort of support. And they were very, sort of quick to support and find the full extent of the breach. There was nothing I would say particularly surprising about that. It really speaks to the operational tradecraft of the actor that you're talking about. The level, the extent of infiltration that the actors were able to affect over a, a very short amount of time was pretty substantial. You look at the earlier uh, hacks, like um, the one that was discovered in 2014, where no like major information was stolen. Hackers were in the networks for, I think, at least, uh, at least for two or three years, and they weren't able to get to um, the PIP server, which is where the, you know, the, the personal investigations or the fingerprint server or the you know, ba um, background personnel records. These uh, tier actors in a very short amount of time were able to infiltrate and spread very quickly. Um, and that was, that was pretty surprising. I would say OPM's response um, in the 2015 incident was remarkable in that they were very quickly, with the, with the assistance of silence, they were able to very quickly um, ascertain the full extent of the breach and respond accordingly. What do you see some of the primary lessons learned from the investigation? The, the report does point to two-factor authentication. I think that really moving to a zero-trust model would definitely help OPM. A zero-trust model is, in, in sort of in broad terms, is one where you, you look at users internal to a network in the same way you would view users external to a network, where your security controls are, are, are um, 
treat you, those t- different types of users in the same way. What you saw with OPM is once they had access within the system, they were very quickly able to proliferate across the network because of poor access controls, lack of two-factor authentication. And um, that that really was uh, a major factor in uh, the full extent of the breach and how quickly they were able, able to do that. that. That was one. I would say two, there needs to be a much better coordination between the public and private sector. You saw, I mean, in retrospect, there were a lot of dots that weren't that went unconnected. And I wouldn't say that was necessarily on- What would be the worst of these? I would say the th- threat connect. So one of the major findings that we had was that the fingerprint records could have been prevented, like in, entirely. These are two major sort of uh, milestones here that would have that should have been a red flag to security at OPM or security of the federal government. That OPM was dealing with an, an actor that was an order of magnitude above sophistication of what they were used to. One was a report by Novetta that came out in October that discussed a group called the Axiom Group which is a name, um, you know, a code name for a certain actor group and is believed to operate out of China. They almost exclusively use a piece of malware called HiKit, which was used against OPM in the past. And they also use malware called PlugX, which was the primary malware used in the 2015 breach. So I mean, our thinking was that report could have, would have highlighted to OPM that um, PlugX, particular type of malware used in 2015, would have been something they, they needed to be looking for. Maybe a, a more a sort of concerted approach towards uh, sort of finding indicators of compromise from that malware in particular. Second, the Threat Connect report I mentioned earlier, that came out in February um, 27th of 2015. The fingerprint records were taken between March 3rd and March 26th. Mm. Threat Connect was able to find one of the domains used in the attack, but they thought it was used in an earlier attempt against OPM. If that information, I think, would have been highlighted and shared amongst the federal government, with OPM in particular, I think there would have been a good chance that the theft of those records could have been prevented. But that, to me, the broader lesson from that is, is we need a more robust um, way to transfer and connect information between the public and private sector, especially with the uh, you know the rise of you know private threat intelligence firms, which you know are really doing a lot of great work. So since the OPM breach, the government announced that it was going to overhaul the federal computer systems and also hire a chief information security officer for the government and you know implement two-factor and all sorts of other things. Um, are you optimistic about those steps that they took uh, being effective? And would you go so far to say that we could prevent another OPM scale breach in the future because of them? I think the steps that the federal government is taking are, are very are very good. I think the, the creating of a, like a federal CISO position is important in, in in sort of two respects. One, it puts you know information security on par with um, you know information services, which I think is in, it's just important in general. Two, I think you need, do definitely need to, what we've seen in the in OPM and other federal agencies is that. You know, being a CIO is, is, is a very difficult job because you have to balance three sort of major, you have to balance putting your resources towards three major equities that are, that are competing at all times. One is information systems as a service, making sure users are getting their email, making sure that it, you know, data is flowing where it needs to flow. Information security, making sure everything's protected. Sometimes those two equities just fight against each other. And three, upgrading and modernizing um, that may uh, impede 
information services, and that may impede, uh, that may put uh, greater stresses on security. Those are that, that sort of triangle of challenges is very difficult. I think it's really important, though, that you have a federal CISO to sort of speak to an, uh, that one of those points in that triangle. And I think that's that going forward. I think that's going to be really important, not only for the federal government, but also. Um, you know, in relations with with Congress and Congress understanding this, the types of challenges that the federal government has um, with those uh, with with balancing those equities. Do you think this reforms went far enough? Uh, I think one of the biggest problems that um, that conti- we continue to have, um, and there has been some sort of legislation about Will Hurd and uh, the, the sort of the Move IT Act, is making sure um, is getting the right talent. Um, Getting right talent um, into the federal government and modern uh, modernization. Um, you look at uh, sort of legacy systems and uh, and updating um, legacy systems. It's not a matter of if it works. Um, I, a lot of legacy systems still work. A lot. I mean, they you know like things like Fortran and COBOL are uh, are still actively developed, and they come up with new versions of them. It's about it's sort of about flexibility and integration. With, with systems and security systems. And a lot of, I'd say, modernized systems that come out are, are better able to be leveraged and, uh, and, are, better, and are more flexible and respondent to um, um, information security than some of their, I would say, some of their predecessors. Uh, as far as whether it's inevitable or whether we're facing another OPM-style um, attack, again, I certainly hope not. I think there were a number of factors that sort of um, came together um, a number of conditions that came together that sort of uh, enabled uh, uh, an attack like OPM to happen. It wasn't OPM uh, hack wasn't fait accompli. It wasn't like it wasn't inevitable. But um, I certainly hope that that's not the what case. What are the factors that came together? A lag, a, a definite lag between one of the factors I talked about was the sort of the 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 challenge between information services and getting information services out. And um, information security, that was one. That was certainly one of the factors. Two is a major lag in um, information security in the federal government in general. Um, you've seen. I mean, we it's, as mentioned in the report, uh, information security has been an issue with OPM for for years, um, and it's as it has been with a number of federal agencies, uh, and. Those, I mean, honestly, those those are the two major factors, and I think, I don't think it was necessarily fully understood the level of threat that I think OPM was was sort of facing, and I don't know um, if there's anyone really to blame on uh, for that, but to I think the military and intelligence personnel, it is sort of second nature to say, of course, OPM is a target. Um, and I would say, of course, like, you know, Social Security Administration is a target, Department of Education is a target. But I don't necessarily think that if you were in OPM or leadership in OPM or, or SSA or, or Department of Education, you would necessarily view it in that lens. And I, so I think um, generally that, that I think that culture is changing. That idea is changing. Um, but I, I'm worried it took like something like OPM to happen in order to trigger that change. That uh, this information is, you can hang a lot of intelligence uh, wins off of information you get from any of these federal agencies. Well, your report, you know, what even said that no U.S. agency appears safe and that national security will be impacted for up to a decade because of this. I mean, can you say a little bit more about those two findings? I mean, they seem pretty strong. 
there are a few different ways you can sort of optimize intelligence. One, and they really revolve around what you would call selectors. There are two different types of selectors, hard selectors and uh, soft selectors. Hard selectors are, are ones with a one-to-one correlation with an entity or a person. I'll give you a for instance. So my name's John Costello. Um, my email address is a hard selector. It's a one-to-one correlation with who I am. I'm the only one who uses it. My name is not a hard selector because it, um, there's a lot of people with the name John Costello. What, the, the, what intelligence services prize hard selectors because they make data work a lot easier. You can get a lot more, you can get a lot better information, a lot more actionable intelligence from that data. Um, and soft selectors, while not as reliable, when you have a group of them, especially ones that are comprehensive, such as birthday, name, address, family, they come together and have the same sort of effect as hard selectors. What OPM data does is it gives you a lot of keys to work with that makes any information you get further down the road much more actionable. Um, If a foreign intelligence service has OPM data and have email addresses, phone numbers, et cetera, if they were to go after Verizon or Gmail or Yahoo, um, any addresses they get can be cross-referenced with um, the OPM data. And what may look like could be, you know, Joe Schmo at yahoo.com, you find out is a general or is a, you know, an analyst for a spy agency. That email, those email chains, which otherwise would be completely probably irrelevant or you wouldn't know, you wouldn't necessarily know their importance, becomes extremely, um, extremely good. So any information, I mean, and, and a lot of this stuff doesn't age off, right? A lot of us use the same sort of usernames for our emails or we'll use them like over time. Or the same fingerprints. Exactly. <laughs> uh, fingerprints, fingerprints, <laughs> fingerprints are, are, are uh, the fingerprints I think are, are, are important, but, um, and definitely pose, I think, a security challenge, uh, but okay, obviously because they can't change. But um, the sheer breadth and, and the depth of information taken by OPM is provides a matrix by which a, a just a comprehensive roadmap of, of federal agencies and and I think military personnel and sensitive positions that will be the gift that keeps on giving for for a very long time. One of the questions that surrounded this is not just the treasure trove that's been stolen, but the potential that information within it has been changed, which opens up a, another avenue. Did you see any evidence of that? And if not, why not? Um, I, we didn't see, I mean, I was talking with U.S. CERT and, uh, and uh, the people who I think would be best sort of placed to, to ascertain that. That was, I mean, that was certainly one concern. Um, in our talking with federal investigators, um, there was no evidence found of that the, the integrity of the information had been compromised. Um, and I, I as, as a sort of a, as someone um, viewing this with a, with a degree of experience, I would say I would agree with that assessment. Why, you know, the, the actors in this case, I, it's, it, it appears as though they acted with the sort of knowledge that they, that they were going to be compromised. They went, you know, this attack went in, in three distinct phases. They opened up shop to get these records 
take them and then leave and then moved on to a different part of the network to compromise the, you know, the background, uh, excuse me, the personnel records. Then they opened that up and then closed it and then moved to a different part of the network to do that. I, I think um, what you're talking about is a is a psychological operation, is a, a poison pill operation um, where you're going in. You're, that is an entirely different um, type of operation. And I think it requires a very different skill set. It requires much more preparation. And it requires, and I think this is very important, the uh, the sort of integration and the participation of much, uh, of much higher level personnel. Um, and I think what it appears what they were trying to do is they were trying to get this information, get it quickly, and, and, and sort of move on. I think if you would have seen the sort of uh, information integrity compromise like, like you know, like what you're, what we're talking, they would have been in there longer. They would have had to have taken that information and uh, sort of, um, and sort of digested it, and then come up with a much longer scale plan. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's sort of, uh, sort of my my read on yeah. it. Do you think um, that OPM for another intelligence agency is a legitimate target? I mean, there's been a lot of talk about. Um, you know, in, in all of the outrage about the OPM breach, there was this sense from some intelligence officials that, you know, people who live in glass houses shouldn't necessarily throw stones, you know, that they're, that, that something like this, while of course we wouldn't like it to happen to us, might be something that, you know, is kind of par for the course in intelligence operations, intelligence gathering. Just wondering what you think about, you know, where this fits into international spying norms and if this is, you know, what are, how does it fit into the global context of what's going on in cyberspace? That's a, that's a really good question. Um, I think, uh, I think in many ways, cyber is uh, not, uh, in a lot of ways, not very different. Certainly cyber espionage is not very different from uh, some traditional forms of espionage. And um, international law has, I think, very, with some exceptions, very little to say on that, as far as a legitimate target, I'm not. I'm not a huge fan of the legitimate or not legitimate target. I think that nation states spy on each other, and I think there's a decent amount of sort of latitude and understanding that that's given when that happens. And taking information itself isn't isn't the issue. It's what they do with it afterwards, and we've seen that um, sort of across the spectrum. Um, so, for instance, with China, like going after like uh, private companies by itself, I wouldn't say is um, outside the bounds of what is expected in espionage. But passing it to uh, private companies within other private companies within China, I think, is is for you know for to give them a sort of competitive edge is a problem. Um, something like OPM. There's, I think there's an understanding that this information has been used by intelligence services. In that case, that is not beyond, I think, what would be expected from a nation state um, in use of this information. Uh, as If you want to call that legitimate or not, I would say the norm in espionage is that that is the, certainly the norm in espionage is where the information goes afterwards. So legitimate or not, I, I think it doesn't, it's not outside the bounds of what you would expect. So I understand that the investigation into what played out at the OPM also gave some insights into other attacks on other targets. Tell us about that. 
So in the investigation, one of the major uh, narratives uh, that has sort of sprung up around the OPM hack is that the same sort of actor that was responsible for OPM was also responsible for the Anthem hack. And I, throughout the investigation, one of the one I think one of the things that we found was that there were actually two different um, hackers that went after. So the same. So the the guys that are responsible for OPM did go after Anthem. But it appears that their attack, their specific uh, attempt was unsuccessful. It was a separate and distinct group that, that sort of was over-responsible. Um, we believe that they likely had, um, were related in some way, um, geographically. Specifically, it appears that both of those groups were operating from, uh, from China. Um, but uh, they do seem to be, they do appear to be two distinct groups. Do they look to be information sharing or operating competitively? That's a, that's a really good question. And I would say that in one of the things you don't want to do, you really don't want to do, if you are a nation state and you have sort of a, a large scale um, cyber espionage enterprise, you do not want to trip over your own two feet. And what we did see is we would saw these two groups going after the same target at the same time, Anthem, or around the same time. You could view that in a few ways. That could be them competing, or that you could say that maybe a command and control, they had different like sort of um, lanes of command and control. And namely, they were controlled by sort of two different people. Or you could say that they were in some sort of competition. That's the two ways you would read that. I think it's hard to decide which one, um, especially. I mean, especially my background being in China. It's, I think it's extremely difficult to say what the level of control, whether willful or not, that China has over its uh, its cyber espionage forces. Mm -hmm. So you're in the interesting position of being someone with a intelligence and technology background. But you were brought in to spend the last year with Congress advising them on these topics. What did you see? What did you observe when it comes to Congress and technology? What could be done better to help Congress uh, get smarter on what we call the cyber? The cyber. Well, I hear the cyber is very big. Yes. It's, it's, very, uh, it's very important. Um, <laughs> Maybe even impossible. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I think there's, uh, there's, a, there's a trust problem. Um, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of expertise that that could be available to Congress, but Congress, you know, a lot of things that Congress works on and that they're, they're interested in, it revolves around trust. I mean, that's why staffs. I mean, you have staffs and you have staff on board because you trust them and you bring people in and and and, and so the entire system works on that level of sort of trust and credibility. Um, expertise is available, but bringing that in. Um, outside of an, an advisory capacity, a more sort of a relationship, I think is really key and really important. One of the major sticking points is, is bringing someone in and making the inner workings of your staff or a committee or a personal office available you know, to the outside expertise opens you up, I think, to, to certain risks. And um, it's very difficult to bring someone in on a temporary basis and establish that level of trust and credibility. Um, one of the, you know, there is a hunger and there's a need and there's, there's definitely, it's known in congressional staff and, and for one, uh, you know, conversations with members for technical expertise on issues like that, you know, uh, congressmen, you know, there are a lot of them, I think there are three computer science majors in Congress right now. 
So there certainly is a demonstrable need, and that's recognized by both members and congressional staff. But how to integrate that expertise in Congress while ensuring that it doesn't open up uh, congressional staff or members to unnecessary risk, and it can be done in a way that is uh, that establishes trust, I think is is the challenge. Uh, the question that we usually end every podcast with is, um, what is your favorite depiction of cybersecurity in fiction? Favorite is in you think it's terrible, so you love to hate it, or just you really appreciate its accuracy or something else about it? Movies, books, TV right, shows. Right, right, right. Uh, I'm gonna, man. I uh, guys, it's gonna sound like it's sound like a fanboy. I'm gonna say I would point to Ghost Fleet. To be honest with you, <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. No, I think I think I think I, I know I know. I endorse this answer. No, I think uh, especially you. like you know, what struck me about Ghost Fleet is one that sort of uh, you know I think you know it, it was a virus embedded in a RFID chip, correct? Um, you, you look at like this, these technologies becoming ubiquitous and information security isn't catching up. And I think that is best evidenced by the recent uh, Mirai botnet attacks. I mean, you're seeing, I, I was speaking with a security researcher um, and said it was only a matter of time. And I was like, what do you, what do you mean it was only a matter of time? And, and she said, it was only a matter of time to someone figured out a vulnerability or an exploit common enough among enough of these devices that you could create a scanner and sort of um, exploit them at scale that would al allow these sorts of attacks to happen. And I think Ghostly was one of the like the earliest examples of like sort of pointing to this ubiquity of technology coupled with uh, a sort of uh, lax or you know sort of lagging information security that is. Um, it shows like how dangerous that can be. And uh, yeah, I would definitely point that out as, as, as fanboyish as that sounds. <laughs> well, thank you right. for that. And thanks again for joining us. No, it was my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again to John Costello for a great conversation. And join us next month when we interview more of cybersecurity's biggest leaders and thinkers. And please be sure to subscribe to us at New America's iTunes and SoundCloud at the Cybersecurity Podcast. And I'm on Twitter at Peter W. Singer. And you can follow me at Sarah Sorcher. Sign up for Passcode at csmpasscode.com. This podcast was directed by John Williams and Amanda Gaines with production assistance from Simone McPhail. Talk to you in a month. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America and the Christian Science Monitor. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Music thanks to MK2 for their songs, The Big Score, and Cold Killa. To learn more about Passcode by the Christian Science Monitor, please visit passcode.csmonitor.com. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.